Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 141. I hope everybody is having a great week out there in drumland. We're having a great week over here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. The holidays are upon us. I hope whatever holiday you celebrate will be fantastic and successful for you and yours. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all those good things. This is our final episode of 2021, and it's a special one. We're going to be joined by the legendary Simon Phillips right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned before our break, we are joined today by the legendary Simon Phillips. Um, Simon took some time out of his very busy schedule to come on and chat with us for over an hour uh, about the upcoming Protocol 5 record. Um, If you are hip to the Protocol records, you know what's coming. Uh, Street date for that is early February, uh, but we talk a lot about the record, but Simon was so gracious to talk about all of the other stuff that he's done throughout his career. Records with Jeff Beck, uh, the Who reunion tour, Judas Priest, um, just everything that he's done. He has played with literally everybody. Uh, We didn't get to touch on it during the interview, but this is an interesting fact. If you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask this question, you'll know the answer The first person to ever play Stairway to Heaven with Jimmy Page after John Bonham's death 
was Simon Phillips. Uh, that's an interesting tidbit, and and regretfully, I did not ask him about that. However, Simon took, like I said, uh, over an hour out of his schedule to come on and talk with us. Make sure you pick up the Protocol 5 record when it hits the shelves. Early February, I think it's February 4th is the street date. Uh, I'm so pleased to bring you this interview. I know you're going to get a whole lot out of it, as I certainly did. Please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the great Simon Phillips. Good morning, Simon. Welcome to the drum shuffle. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be on here. Well, we, we you know, this is um, a, a real treat for me. You know, I, I think it goes without saying you're one of the most renowned and respected drummers uh, in our community. So uh, this is a big treat for me and we appreciate you taking the time to do it. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let's let's go. For <laughs> sure. For sure. Well, you know, I, I want to start at the at the very beginning, because one of the things that I think is very unique about you, um, you know, we talk to guys that say, yeah, you know, I got my big break and I was, you know, working at a, at a sandwich shop or a restaurant or, you know, driving a cab or whatever. You have never had another job other than musician. Is that correct? Um, well, I did for a very short space of time. Um, it was, uh, the summer of 1973. Um, so I'd been on the road with my dad for four years and on May, I believe it was May 24, um, he very suddenly passed away, which meant that, uh, a big question mark came over, uh, as to what do I do with his band? Um, at the time, I was really done with, with playing, or rather, I wanted to start playing rock and roll. I wanted to start playing modern jazz. Uh, his music was very old-fashioned. It was 1930s swing slash Dixieland dance music. Um, and I just wanted to play something different, you know, as any kid would. I was 16 years old. Um, and also, you know, I was 16. The youngest guy in the band was uh, over 30, uh, going all the way up to uh, 60s, you know, people of 65 in the band. So, um, and then the other issue was who's going to play the clarinet? My father had a very distinct sound and a very distinct style. And without him, it would just sound horrible. It wouldn't be right. So, uh, as well as me wanting to get into playing more modern music, I was also still quite a purist because I grew up with, you know, his music. I wanted it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it sound any other way than it did when he was in the band. So I said, no, nope, I want to disband the band, which was kind of one of my, you know, as a big decision to make at 16, uh, effectively putting me out of work and everybody in, in the band. Um, I did a few casual engagements like, like dances with other band leaders filling in the slots that, that my father's band was booked for. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I, I realized even then I realized the difference of standard between playing in my dad's band and playing in these other bands. It was just totally different. Um, and <laughs> I guess it was the summer. I forgot to go back to school. 
<laughs> I was already <laughs> part-time schoolboy. Um, when I say I forgot to go back to school, I, I, I mean, I'm quite serious. Um, the Because of what was going on, you know, with my father's death and the band and a lot of other up, upheaval, I, I just kind of just didn't go to school. And then I got a call from one of the teachers there who, the French teacher, who was a good friend of, of my father's actually, and uh, kind of paved the way, helped pave the way for me to be in school and not in school, which it frankly was illegal back then, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, sure. You know, I used to leave school at about, you know, one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon and say, excuse me, miss, uh, I have to go over to gig tonight in Hull. I said, right, make sure you do your homework. And I'd say goodbye to everybody. Bye, everybody. Walk home, which was over a mile. Uh, pack my drunk kid up. Change into a, um, a dinner jacket, you know, to uh, you know, a suit, a bow tie, and get on the bus or car, which, whichever era it was, you know. Um, so um, I was <laughs> at, at, at home. My mother said, you have to go out and get a job. Oh. But I've got a job. I said, yeah, but you don't have any kids. <laughs> oh. So I managed to get a job in an electrical store <laughs> for okay. about, I think I worked there for about two months or something, selling uh, uh, washing machines, Hoovers, Hoover bags, and stereo systems. Now, because I was so into recording and, and uh, you know, tape machines and all that kind of stuff, Pretty much anybody that came in the store, I tried to sell them a stereo system. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me and said, I, I, I just want a Hoover bag. I said, yeah, but this stereo system gorgeous. I mean, no, I'm a terrible salesman, but, but I just wanted to sell it so I could go and set it up for them. <laughs> of course, yeah. But uh, So that was really the only gig I ever had outside of uh, music. And uh, I was just incredibly fortunate that during that time, which, I mean, I just was, what am I doing? You know, selling um, bits of uh, kitchen apparatus, you know, um, when I should be gigging, you know, should be playing. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate to get a call from uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, thanks to one of the piano players that used to play in my dad's band. We always got on great. He used to introduce me to uh, a lot of great music, um, he was the first person that gave me a copy of Chick Corea, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, um, which I just recently bought, by the way, first uh, vinyl you know, for uh, since then, you know. Um, and um, went for the audition and, and was very lucky to get it. So I was only really out of work from the music business for maybe two, maybe three months. Well, and, and, you know, for most folks, I think, you know, if you're a lifer in the music business, two months of, you know, as, as you put it, selling kitchen apparatus, that's probably enough to, <laughs> to let you know, I, I really need to be doing the music thing. Yeah. Cause you, you, you oh, know, yeah. Hey, listen, school was like that for me. You know, I was at school, you know, from, from the ages of 12 to 16, four years and three different schools because, you know, it was kind of tricky. Uh, and it also didn't make me the most popular person, you know, yeah. um, uh, going out and, you know, what, what, what's, what's the deal with him, you know? Um, but luckily the last school I went to, I joined 
in the in the summer term, and I was a cricketer. I used to play cricket quite seriously. And if you do well at sports at a school, it that really enamors you to uh, the other kids. Sure. Um, I was not a soccer player, and uh, an an immense disappointment to everybody. Uh, I used to play rugby at my uh, prep school. You know, I was useless at soccer. Plus, I didn't like the game anyway. Um, and um, so. Once we had the cricket season, great, no problem, and tennis. So I was kind of lucky for, with the last school, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was, I was still, even at school, thinking, come on, I, I, I want to get going. I want to get going with my career because that's all I'm going to do. I know that. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and that's exactly what you've done. Um, you, you know, and I, one of the other interesting things that I find about you is – the fact that you started playing in your dad's band at such a young age, I mean, I think you were, you know, 11, 12 years old. Um, most folks of, shall we say, your vintage, the story is almost always, I saw the Beatles. And that's what made me want to, you know, start drumming or, or pick up a guitar, whatever the case may be. You were already there by the time, you know, the, the, the Beatles became a thing. And you mm-hmm. literally went from, you know, your dad's band to, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar. And that led to a whole bunch of session work. And yeah, it really hasn't ended in all these years. I mean, you have been a first call drummer for almost everybody. And, and, you know, I won't bore you with making you relive every single record you've ever played on. Um, <laughs> but l- let's, let's be clear. You've played with everybody. Um, you, you know, you've done records with everybody, you know, Jeff Beck, I mean, I, the, you know, Mick Jagger, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Um, do you look back now and say, I was always in the right place at the right time, or is it I was the best guy for the job? How do you look back on all of those sessions? Um, well, I don't think I saw either of those things. Um, it was really a question of having a job and, and having work in the music business. Um, in Britain, in the in the sixties and the seventies, you know, it was, it was still pretty tough living there. Post-war uh, country, um, nothing was ever that easy. Um, I was just really lucky to be called for session work. There's periods of, you know, fallow times where where I, I wasn't working. But that is that's what we do. That's what a musician or an actor does. You know, you go through periods of working, periods of not working. Um, I just guess I was really lucky to uh, to be called to go into all these studios in London, um, many of which have gone, of course, um, and emulate uh, what guys were doing in New York at the time and, and Los Angeles, you know, Steve Gadd, Harvey Mason, um, uh, Ed Green, you know, Bernard Purdy. Grady Tate, you know, I used to listen to all those guys and try to play like them in in London, you know, groove wise and and uh, um, so I don't know. I just looked at it as um, a, a valuable experience, and everything is a learning curve. I think 
even even now, even today, I, I still, you know, if I'm recording a track and I'm kind of, hmm, a bit of a puzzle of how to approach this track, um, it's great. You're learning all the time. You never stop learning. Uh, so I just felt it was, a, you know, that was, that was what I was doing. <laughs> I never felt that I was, I hoped I was the best man for the job. Uh, there's many times when I felt, oh, I don't think I, you know, did so well on this one, but my experience got me through it, you know. Um, just happy to, to get the call and have the work. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's, you know, I, I asked the same question of Russ Kunkel recently. You know, we yeah. had him on the show. He's played on so yeah. many records, and he was like, oh, yeah. You know, I just seem to always be in the right place at the right time. You know, and, yeah. and, and get yeah. the call. And, you know, he just talked about, you know, sort of the luck of it all of, you know, you go to a session, you meet somebody on that session, and then your name comes up on their next session. Right. And it, it just exactly it just That's kind exactly of b- builds yeah. on those relationships. Well, I think we were very lucky in that period. Um there were so many recordings going on. And the reason for that is that nobody had home studios. Um, nobody had a sequencer. Nobody had a, I mean, some people had tape recorders um, or a little cassette machine. But essentially, if anybody wanted to make a demo so they could take it to a record company to get a record deal, you had to hire musicians. Yeah. And that, what I started doing. Um, so I'm a Jesus Christ superstar, and one of the cast uh, wants to make a, a, a demo, and uh, that's when I got asked to do it. So would you come do a session with me? And I said, absolutely, you know. And then I'd go go to that session. It would only be a four track studio back in those days for demos, uh, if you're lucky, eight track. But even in those days, an eight track studio was a master studio, you know. Um, and I turn up and there'll be, you know, all these, you know, maybe three or four other musicians who have no idea who I am. They're, they think I'm the T-boy <laughs> or the assistant. And, you know, go, oh, yeah, could you make me a cup of tea? I went, um, I'm the drummer, <laughs> you know. And they go, oh, yeah. And, of course, uh, we're in the control room. We've got maybe a chart or maybe we don't. Maybe the artist just sits down and plays a song on an acoustic guitar. Uh, you either memorize it or write a bit down. It really depends. You know, I memorize most of it. And then we go out and they look at me sitting down on my drum kit and put my headphones on and uh, getting ready to count everybody in. And they go, huh? How old is this kid? And yeah. I'm 16. You know, I'd already had a good, maybe let's say three years of studio experience with my dad. So, you know, I knew how it all goes question was you know just you know play well time is the most important thing uh good timekeeping um and we were really in that era which you know ross is talking about being so lucky yes we were so lucky that that's what the business was about and then that bass player we say goodbye and he goes hey i'm gonna i'm gonna give me a number and then i get a call from someone else Oh, so-and-so was on this session. He recommended you. Can you do it? I said, yeah. He said, you sound very young. He said, yeah, I'm pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on it goes. And then I'll never forget a session at Air Studios. I was very shy, by the way, in those days. And at Air Studios, this would have been in, how old was I? 
uh, this was like 75, I think. So I was 18. I got to the studio early. I had already done quite a few sessions, so the engineers all knew me. I'd set up, they'd mic'd it up, we'd already got drum sound, and I waited in Air Studio One, and I was looking at some tape boxes. And the previous session uh, that had been a couple of days ago was the Billy Cobham Band. Oh, wow. And it was the, uh, some tracks for an album called Funky Thide of Sings. And I, so I opened the tape box and looked at the track sheet, because, you know, I was, I was so into it so into it i understand you know, what a track sheet was and and i'm looking at the how they put you know how many tracks the drum kit went over uh, he had a brass section and fender roads and bass and guitar you know all this stuff i'm looking and wow you know um <laughs> and uh and this is in the time actually before we even had simty code on a on a tape so you had 24 tracks of usable you know uh magnetic tape <laughs> and uh the control room was filling up with people and the producer said, who was a guy called Tony Ashton, he said, well, has anybody seen this drummer, Simon Phillips? And I go, um, uh, uh, that, that'd be me. And they all turned around and looked at me and kind of looked back at Tony and went, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it was only when we started playing and, of course, on that session was Jim Cregan, guitar player that ended up playing in... Um, uh, 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 oh, Rod, Rod Stewart's band in, in 76. Uh, the bass player was in a band called Medicine Head, and the percussionist, Tony Carr, had been playing in uh, Phil Seaman's band just after he died, uh, and we'd actually played a gig together. And he remembered, and he went, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> nice. It was really fun. And, you know, so a lot of sessions were like that. I felt quite nervous and shy and very lonely, actually, uh, until we started playing. And then, I mean, can you imagine for those guys? They're in their mid to late 20s, maybe in their 30s, you know, and there's this, this kid. And, and I don't know. I mean, I look back at it now and I kind of go, did that really happen? <laughs> but it did. You know? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think anybody that knows your history looks at how young you were. I mean, when you, so I, I'll skip ahead a couple of years. You did um, a, a record with Judas Priest. And this was, mm -hmm. you know, kind of before they exploded in the MTV era of the 80s. But I, right. I, I want to say it was 77. Uh, the record was Sin After Sin. And the one thing that I wanted to ask about, you know, that record, you, you must have been 20 years old when, when you did those sessions. Um, but it, it, arguably, you were the guy that brought double bass drumming to heavy metal records, for God's sakes. I mean, I, <laughs> I could make that argument that you were the guy that made that popular in British metal. Um, and you were 20, at that time, or 21, yeah. something like that. I was 20. I, I had my 20th birthday during those sessions. Oh, I mean, I just, you know, so, but when people think of, you know, when they hear your history and, and the Who reunion in 89 and, and all these things, you know, people must think you're much older than you are, you know, I mean, because you've done so oh, much. I used to get that a lot, actually. Um, Towards the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when I would turn up to do like a, a drum clinic or something, 
they w- they couldn't believe how young I was. They thought, you must be in your 30s. I went, no. <laughs> yeah, that did used to happen. It was very funny. Yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, you know, Now, but- interesting, sin after sin, um, we didn't have a term called heavy metal back then. Um, it was still heavy rock. Um, and I think, I mean, again, this could be debatable, uh, but I do feel that, that sin after sin could be classified maybe as one of the first heavy metal records. I agree. Yeah. I mean, there was, you had Black Sabbath, which were originally heavy rock, but they, they really get into, you know, being called heavy metal pretty early on. Um, and I'm sure there's plenty of others, but I think sin after sin was quite pivotal in, in, in that, in that change of style of music, you know, I would agree. And, you know, I, I, I just, I, I don't know what the, the production decisions were in the studio, but you know, you played a, a, a double bass drum kit on that record and now look at, <laughs> at where that yeah. style of music is blast beats. And, you well, know, you, you got now, guys that are, that was an interesting uh, scenario because I started taking two bass drums. The, okay, so the first record I recorded with two bass drums was in 1974, and it was the first band I was in called Chopin. Um, and then I used to turn up to sessions with two bass drums, which was kind of a bit obnoxious, <laughs> a bit awkward, because <laughs> You just didn't do that, you know. Uh, if you were Cozy Powell, you did. Yeah. Um, if you were Carmine Apis, you, you did. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of a weird thing. When I started doing, uh, after that band, which I played double bass drum in, um, when I went back to doing sessions, yes, I, I, I started, I just pulled out, I had two Ludwig kits, identical kits, and, and uh, they would leapfrog around the studios. So I was just playing, you know, single kick, two racks and one floor for a lot of those sessions. But whenever there was a session that was a bit more interesting, I used to put both those kits together. So I had two 22-inch kick drums, two 12s, two 13s, two 16s. It wasn't the most ideal kit, but we couldn't get in England. We just couldn't buy those other drums. We couldn't get a 1410. We couldn't get a 1414 or an 1816. We just couldn't get them. It was, you'd have to probably order them straight from Manis or, you know, a New York store, which is what I eventually did, um, or go to the States on a tour and bring them back. Yeah. It was very hard. Even um, the the distributors wouldn't ship them in because they didn't, they were expensive and they didn't know whether they could sell them. So that was a problem, you know. But yeah, taking uh, two bass drums in, (laughs) I mean, actually engineers loved it. I mean, they had to get mic stands from another studio if they had two or three studios, cables, microphones, but they, they enjoyed it. You know, we, we, had, we had a great time doing it. Well, you know, I mean, and I think that's another hallmark of you is, you know, you've always, to my knowledge, had a large kit. You're, you're you know, you're one of the few guys that always, you know, travel with a, a large kit. And not that, that there's anything good or bad about that. It's just, you know, and you've had a very long-term relationship with, with Tama now for many, many years. And that's mm-hmm. another hallmark of you is your drums always sound so incredible. I've never seen any piece of tape anywhere where your drums don't sound phenomenal. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, one of the reasons, and this happened pretty early on, I would say, when did I really start getting this concept? Um, it would have been, it was the early 80s when I went back to using doublehead drums because I was using a Ludwig Octoplus for most of my recording uh, from 75 through 79, 80, 81 even. Uh, even though I started using the Tamas um, in 79, I was mainly using them for, for live gigs, not not recording, just purely from, from a... Um, uh, a practical point of view, you know. Um, but once I was using those double heads and, you know, the tuning, you got that many drums, that's a big problem to tune. It really is. I started realizing that the kit had its own kind of reverb, as it were. And um, one of the reasons why I always set up a double kit, I mean, there's times when I don't. It depends on, on the project, you know. But 99% of the time, I set up, the, or, or, you know, my, my guy sets up my, my full kit because I look at it as like it's a grand piano. You wouldn't get a grand piano and take three of the octaves of strings off. <laughs> right, right. It right. wouldn't sound like a piano. It would sound like a medieval harpsichord, you know. Um, that's how I feel about the, the drum kit. If I pick up my snare drum and take it away from the kit, go the other side of the studio and play it, it doesn't sound anything like it does when it's with the kit. Right. So that's my concept. And the concept is that I can just have one microphone over the top, mono, and the kit will sound great yeah. and balanced. That's the most important thing. The cymbals will not be too loud. You'll even get some bass drum on that overhead, which works. You know, you'll, you will need a kick drum mic, obviously, but that's how we used to record drums. One overhead, one bass drum mic, mono, you know, both rooted to the same track um, or both rooted to uh, a mono full track recording with everybody on there. That's how we used to record with my dad. Yeah. You know, nine piece band, probably nine, 10, 11, uh, maybe 12 or 13 microphones. The console was probably only 12 or 14 or 16 if it was a BBC console. And they all went to one bus to one track, a quarter inch tape, full track. That's what it used to be called. And it was mono. You had one speaker in the control room. Yes. Not two. And that's how I started recording. You know, so that that's my my background. Um, and I just, I guess, took the concept through the drum kit. And if it sounds good with one, it's going to sound great with loads. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, and I, I, not to belabor the point, but, you know, it, I've, I've just read so much, you know, at one time, I think I read an interview where you put paint cans full of sand in your bass drums to, you know, just kind of take up some of the, 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 the sonic space. Um, you know, you've been very innovative in the way you orchestrate the recording of your kit. Well, let, let me be honest. I've stolen everything I learned, <laughs> everything I, I do. Literally, 
I have. I just watch people. If it's something I like, I steal it and then <laughs> modify, you know. The paint can, I have to give credit to Eddie Kramer. Okay. Um, and it was quite late. It was in the early, either late 90s or early 2000s, uh, Shaw uh, Microphones had designed a brand new microphone um, called the KSM 44. Um, it was a double capacitor condenser mic. Um, and they wanted to have a test recording. So as I was a Shaw endorser, they asked me um, if I could put together um, uh, uh, the band that I, I had with Steve Lukather at the time, which was kind of Los Lobotomies. So we, we, it was a kind of version of that. It was actually Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Babco, Steve Lukather, and myself. Um, and Eddie Kramer, and I wish I could remember the name of the studio. It was in Lancashire, Lancashire just off Lancashire Boulevard. Uh, I can't remember it. Anyway, nice studio. Uh, I think Neve console. Uh, we were recording to tape, so it was a pro- I think they had studios. Um, and Eddie Kramer called me up before the session. He said, right, uh, w- w- what does your drum kit consist of? And so I told him, and he said, oh, all sounds good. Um, uh, the only thing I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, put uh, a paint can in your bass drum. And I said, well, that would be two and two bass drums. He went, oh, yeah. I said, um, he said, would you mind? I said, well, uh, Eddie, I've had all sorts of things in my bass drums <laughs> over these last 30-something years. Uh, fine, whatever you want to do, because obviously I admire Eddie very much and you know, loved his records, uh, you know, all the Jimi Hendrix records he did. Beautiful sound. Um, and uh, so we did it. And immediately I, I felt, I could feel it, first of all, because there's a weight in, inside the bass drum to start with. Um, in the phones, the kick drum sounded great, but that doesn't always, that can be misleading. Um, but then when I went into the control room to listen, I went, oh, wow, that sounds great. And I looked to the channel. I said, well, these two channels? He said, yep. I said, but your EQ button's out. He said, yeah, that's just flat. I went, wow. So that, that totally converted me to using that, that technique. He used paint cans. Um, that's a little dangerous to travel with when you're going from studio to studio because those paint cans are not very strong and you can split and then you've got paint everywhere. So I went to a fish store, a place that sells pet fish, (laughs) and I got a load of gray sand and then I went to the hardware store and got some empty one-gallon paint cans. I took them home and I got my scales out and I weighed the paint can, 13 pounds. I filled an empty paint can full of the gray sand, put it on the scales, 13 pounds. Weighed exactly the same. So I said, well, much better that sand gets spilled in a bass drum than paint. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so that's why they're filled with sand. And uh, I've been using it ever since. So, uh, But Eddie has to take the credit for that you know it's a bit like the same with ken scott i credit ken scott for my inside mic uh positioning uh for mainly for live um he was the guy that turned me on to that you know well i mean it's just you know things like that you, you know i i don't know if it's my level of drum nerdery or, or what it is but those things are so fascinating to me like wh- why do you do that you you, you know i mean sound people engineers have come to me and said well this is 
you know, this is a trick I picked up from X. And then yeah. I, I'm just like you. I'm like, oh, I'm going to use that again because it sounds incredible. Um, yeah. It's just, it's so fascinating to me how we come up with these solutions um, mm-hmm. to things related to our instrument. And, and that's one that's, that's amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. And just, just to explain re- really what it does very briefly, um, recording, a, especially a 24-inch bass drum, but it, it could be any size, um, there's a lot of information for that poor little microphone to have to absorb. Uh, you've got huge extended lows, especially when you get close to the, the batter head inside the drum or just outside it. Um, when you have a front head on, um, depending whether you have a hole or not, depending what kind of sound you want, there's also a very high slappy sound as well, quite trebly, which is, it's a very kind of, it's more of a heavy metal sound, which is kind of cool. Um, but what the paint does, it's mass. And so what mass does is it kind of acts as an, as an acoustic compressor. It soaks up the really low, unusable bottom end from the, from the drum, but it also soaks up that really top slappiness inside the drum, which makes it what I call microphone friendly. And um, I use this term a lot, and I use it for every single instrument, guitar, bass, tenor, piano. There's certain instruments which sound great acoustically, but they're not microphone friendly. Yeah. And it's a very subtle difference. And it's so subtle that you can hear an instrument and go, oh, that sounds great. You put your mic in front of it or wherever you want to put it. You go into the control room, you set your gain, and you listen. You go, ah, doesn't sound as good as I thought it would sound. Yeah. You know, can you try maybe, you know, try a different, uh, you know, maybe we'll try a different amp or something. Maybe I'll try a different microphone. It's so weird how that works. And what works in one studio or works for you 90% of the time will come and bite you in the backside in another studio because it won't work. And that is a puzzle that I'm still trying to figure out. And I'm sure a lot of engineers, you know, come up against um, and that's when you gain experience. It's like, it's like having a good gig. When you have a good gig, you have a great time. Your ego is brushed, but you learn nothing. <laughs> if <laughs> right. you have a bad gig, that's when you start learning. Yeah. Because you're going, why? I'm really struggling with the sound. I just cannot seem to play today. It's, or everything I'm, my choices of what I'm doing are just not good today. So you're you're kind of battling a little bit. That's when you learn, I believe. Anyway, yes, and you know, I've been in situations where it was you know totally seat of the pants, no rehearsal, and you you know I worked with a band leader, and he said, "Well, if you train wreck this song in front of these you know two hundred people or whatever the case may be, he was like, you'll never do it Mm -hmm. again." You, you yeah. know, and, and that is the way you learn when you have a, yeah. a, a, a bad experience, you go, ah, I don't want to do that again. And it, yeah. you know, it, it, it reinforces what you should be doing. Um, yeah. for sure. That's a great yeah, point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. so I, I want to move forward chronologically a little bit here. Um, I, what year was the first 
protocol record. Was that, was it the early nineties or late eighties? I, I get confused a little bit. Late eighties. Um, in, uh, so I, I had been producing Mike Oldfield from 1983, uh, with, uh, an album called crises, 84, uh, discovery, and then uh, a few other things in between. And in 1986, I installed my first professional studio in my home uh, in, in England, and I was doing a lot of production then. Um, I had been writing music and demoing it all up and taking it around record companies. At that time, you know, as much as I said, oh, this is great, but we don't know what to do with that. So I couldn't get a record deal. And I had a clinic tour in the States booked in, I think, May or June of uh, 1988. Um, and I thought to myself, I'm, I've got a studio. I've got a week of actually doing nothing. <clears throat> I think I'm going to make a record. <laughs> uh, I can't afford, I didn't, didn't have a budget, so I couldn't afford to pay musicians. So I played everything myself. And that was the first protocol mini album because I only recorded five tracks. Um, and I took it around to uh, all my clinics and tried to sell them at the clinics and people bought them. I had a thousand printed up and I took them all over the, the world. Actually went to the far East and ended up in Australia with a few copies of it. Um, and at some point a record company executive heard this mini album and called me and said, we'd like to license it. And that was a, uh, a company called Music for Nation, Nations. It was a company which had signed Metallica. So it was a heavy metal record, a uh, heavy rap metal label. <clears throat> they had Nuclear Assault, which was another great band. <clears throat> um, they had some of the Zappa records. And they signed me to their label, Food for Thought. And it was released in 1989. Wow. That's, that's a, an amazing story in and of itself. I had no idea, but it, so, and I want to make sure that all the drummers that are listening to this, here's this, you have really no uh, music theory training. You are a self-taught composer. A am I correct in stating that? Absolutely correct. I should have gone to music school, but A, we didn't have them. We only had the the Royal College of Music, and drums wouldn't pass as an instrument. Um, and also, I was working. I didn't have time to, to study music, so I had to just pick it up as I went along. And, you know, I've also, you know, read different interviews where you have said that you start your composing process always from, a, you know, a melody standpoint. You, you don't start from a groove standpoint. And I find this so intriguing when I talk to all the great, you know, drummers who are also great composers, um, you know, Daphnis Prieto, Bill Stewart, you know, all these guys that I've talked to, they all say the same thing. I always start with the yeah. melody. And yeah. I, I cannot for the life of me as a drummer understand that because I always start with the groove. So yeah. maybe give me, you know, why that is. Well, it, it's composition, and <clears throat> not everybody is a composer. Um, it, it's just it's just the way it is, you know. Uh, it's like saying uh, there are certain musicians who, you know, they're not they're not 
uh, concert pianists. Paul McCartney is not a concert pianist, you know. He's certainly no Anthony Jackson uh, as a bass player, but <laughs> he's a composer. Yes. He's a songwriter. And, of course, all of his playing, and he plays, even plays drums, is so musical because it's compositional playing. And this is something I'm very kind of strong about, even as a, as a player, uh, is playing compositionally, playing for the song. Um, it's like you listen to a demo and you go, hmm, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And you go out there and you play something totally different to what you thought you were going to play. <laughs> right. And that's what I call compositional playing. Instinct. Total instinct. Um, and, you know, I mean... <laughs> Some people have it. Some people don't. And it's not just drummers. I mean, there are, you know, I've, I've heard many musicians who do their records and, you know, guitar player, piano player. And, you know, compositionally, it's okay. You know, they're just not, I don't think they're, they're just not composers in, the, in that way. Um, composition can come from anything. It can come from, I mean, I can force myself to come from a groove. Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, often it's a groove that uh, I pick out on, on, a, on, a, on a piano. It's, it's got chords, it's got some root, you know, bass, and a rhythm. I very rarely go from the drums. I usually go from the piano, but it might be a four-chord sequence, or maybe even a one-chord. And I go, oh, this is cool, you know. Um, but a lot of the composition uh, does come... Uh, melody first. I'll just start singing something and I go, ooh, hang on, this sounds cool. Uh, I don't even know what meter it is. Um, I have to work that out. So I, I either use my fingers or I just record it in, into a sequencer and then, and then listen to it and go, oh, wow, that's in 17 or 15 or whatever it is, you know? Um, but I can also force myself into, into a composition. In other words, let's say hmm, most of my compositions are all medium tempo. I want an up-tempo tune. Right, let's today concentrate on up-tempo. And that's the first kind of uh, restriction I've given myself. And giving yourself restrictions in many ways can be very useful. Uh, it's something I do when, when soloing as a, as a drummer. When you do a drum solo, after playing for 50 years, you can't just play every lick he knows. You'll be there for, you know, three hours. <laughs> um, when you're a young drummer, you don't have such a voc vocabulary, so your solos are usually made up of all the licks you know. That's not a solo. That's just a combination of little tools that you've put together. Yeah. Composition is totally different on, on a drum kit when it comes to solo. In fact, any, any instrument. Um, and sometimes it's good to limit yourself. You know, it's good to say, I'm not going to play a cymbal, or I'm only going to use toms, or I won't touch a tom-tom, or I'm only going to play double strokes. This whole solo is going to be composed of the rudiment, the double stroke. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing to do. And when I'm on the road playing every night or every other night and having to do a solo, after, once you get used to how you play again, or once you get used to hearing yourself again, and you're no lo longer that knocked out with what you're hearing. <laughs> um, <laughs> then you have to really start digging deep and, and setting yourself little boundaries, I think, musical boundaries. Um, and it's the same with composition, you know. Um, but 
other than that, I'm not, I can't really explain how it happens, where it comes from. I start the day staring at a screen in Pro Tools and a keyboard and go, hmm, what am I going to do today? And then two, three hours later, I've got a whole composition. I'm going, how did that happen? I, I don't know. I just don't know. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's just, you know, I keep using the word amazing, but it amazes me, you know, people have that capability because I'm not one of them. I'm not a composer, yeah. right? You know, I, yeah. I'm a, yeah. a very serviceable drummer, but that does not make me Paul McCartney, right? And right. Paul McCartney right. is also a very serviceable drummer, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. But yeah. that, you know, it doesn't go both ways, I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah. after the first protocol record and i've always wanted to ask you this and i don't know that mm -hmm. i've ever heard the answer but you know right after that album came to the surface you joined the who for the reunion tour so yep. it was kind of like hitting pause on you as a band leader in your compositions um and, you know, here we are getting ready to have Protocol 5 come out in February of 22. Um, so there's been some fits and starts in there for sure. But are you constantly composing or is it more of a conscious thing of, well, it's it's time for me to put something out? Um. Well, around that time, uh, any free time I had, I was composing. In fact, after, as soon as I got back from that trip, uh, that drum clinic tour, which actually was a world, uh, it was a world tour I did in 88, uh, and I think it was about May, um, started off in Singapore, I remember. That was my first uh, clinic of that tour. Um, once I got back, I delved straight back into writing. I'd already had other compositions that didn't make the record because they just weren't finished. Um, I was already writing for the next album, even before we started rehearsing with The Who. Okay. Whenever I had spare time, you know, I had now had my studio, I had my sounds all, all happening. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would get home and uh, I had, you know, nothing to do this week in terms of uh, other gigs. I get in the studio. I, I worked every day. Yeah. Okay. Well, and... You know, I, I and I don't want to gloss anything over. I mean, we could do three hours with you, you know, and, and <laughs> I, I, I seriously, because there's so much there to delve into. Uh, but I, would, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at, at some point you decided to make the move to the States and that was in the, you know, early 90s or so. And Not, yeah, so when I guess right as you got here, you joined Toto and that lasted for, you know, arguably 21 years. I think there was a, a pretty dead period there at the end, but you know, all this time you're doing so many different things. You're, you're moving across the pond as it were, you're producing, you're recording, um, you're playing with, with Toto. You're, you, you just got so many things going on. Um, does that, when you look back now, does that feel like kind of a natural progression of just stay busy? Um, yeah, but, you know, funnily enough, there were periods of, of, of non-busyness, too. Um, so the thing about moving to the States was I was producing a lot in the late 80s. But the problem was the record business was starting to change. 
producing was starting to change. And I was finding myself not being in a very challenging playing situation. The Who was fantastic. And after that, there were a couple of things. But generally, I wanted to play with great musicians. I wanted to get to America. Um, I wanted to do that since I was a kid, you know. Um, and also personal life came into it as well. Uh, I was, you know, just getting uh, ready to, to go through a divorce. And I just thought, you know, I think this is a time. So I started applying for uh, with a, 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 a lawyer in New York and, a, and an immigration lawyer in Niagara Falls, who is a very famous lawyer that does a lot of British uh, acts when they come to the States. He sorts out their work visas. Um, I said, I want to move to the States. And uh, I found out that it was not as easy as I thought because I wasn't coming to the States as, a, as an artist signed to a record company where they would apply for my visa. I wasn't a writer with a publishing company in America. I wasn't in a band. I was on my own. And so therefore, who's going to get my work visa? <laughs> so the, these two lawyers got together and they figured out a scheme. Um, so it was a lot more complex than most people when they move to the States from, from England, because they're usually signed to a record company. Um, and I'd started that process in, I believe, in 1991. And then by, I believe, uh, maybe spring or, it was probably spring of 92, I had all my final uh, papers and visa and everything in place. So it was just a question of, wow, I can legally now go to the States uh, when? <laughs> when should I do this? <laughs> um, I had a pretty busy summer. I uh, just started playing again after many years with the Jack Bruce band. Um, we used to live quite close to each other, and he used my studio to record. Um, and uh, he asked me to play with him again. I thought, this will be fantastic. And it was a trio with Blue Saraceno on guitar. Yeah. And we went to Japan, and we were doing gigs in, in Europe. Um, the production side of things, I was getting very disheartened by the record companies because um, they, uh, long, that, that would take too long to explain. Um, I, I was ready to move. Um, and, but I had a, a record in the can, Force Majeure, had just been recorded. I'd finished all the overdubs and I was mixing it. Um, and that's when I was doing a project actually in Ibiza, which, which is when I heard, uh, with, with Bobby Kimball actually, which is where I heard the news that Jeff Bacaro had passed away, um, which was just, huh, really, what? You know, I mean, it was an absolute shock. I didn't know Jeff that well. I'd just met him a couple of times. But, you know, as you know, he's a, he was a giant, and well, still is yes. in, uh, in music, you know, in, in the drumming world. Um. And a week later, I get a call from Steve Lukather, who's in a meeting with the band, with his manager up in Ventura. And I had no idea why he was calling. I mean, we did know each other, but not well. I thought maybe he just wanted to talk, you know, because, you know, long, you know, long-lasting brother, really, you know, um, had just gone. Um, but he came straight out with it. 
I'm in a meeting with a band here. Uh, we'd like you to come do our tour. Wow. I went, what? And he said, yeah, we've, played, we've got 42 shows uh, in and around Europe and the Far East, um, and we're going out in September. Um, can you do it? I went, <laughs> whoa, okay, hang on a minute. First of all, Toto, me? <laughs> yeah. I just didn't see the correlation there at all, you know? But on the other hand, I was extremely honored that they even, you know, considered me. But I was like, wow, okay, uh, I'm going to need some time to think. He said, well, to, I'll give you a few days, but let us know. We've got to know. We've got to move on this. I said, okay, let me, let me make some calls. So, of course, I had to make all the calls to the sessions and whatever gigs I had lined up to, to tell them, look, I've just been asked to blah, 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 and I won't be able to make your record date. Um, to my surprise, everybody, I think Toto to musicians is, is, is such a, you know, a gigantic musical event or whatever it is, you know, to musicians. They just, they respect all the musicians. And they said, I will, obviously, I'm disappointed you can't make it. Go and do it. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Only one person got pissed off with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. And it wasn't anybody that, that you, you wouldn't know who it was. Uh, and I said, well, look, I, <laughs> what am I going to do? And uh, anyway, so, and that was it. And uh, the very next day, I went into London to record with um, Big Country, uh, Buffalo Skinner's record. Um, and within a few weeks, uh, two weeks, I, I, well, I called Luke. I said, okay. And they sent me a dat of the new record, which was Kingdom of Desire, which kind of, when I heard the record, I went, ah. It made a little I, more sense at that point. It made more sense because they were going into a little bit more heavier rock yeah. uh, scenario, which I really dug. I love the album. I thought it was a great album. I uh, thought it sounded great. Bob Clearmount had mixed it, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I said, yeah. And then next thing, just a couple of weeks later, I left my house with two suitcases and a box of microphones. Um, <laughs> and that was it. Never went back. Uh, I was on the plane with a, a bag full of batteries, a DAT machine, a pair of headphones, and some manuscript paper doing charts um, on Virgin Airways and being fed lots of glasses of champagne. Nice. <laughs> Writing charts. <laughs> And that was it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I think, you know, that section of your career lasted a good long while. And, and, you know, I don't want to, everybody knows it wasn't like Toto was in the the studio every six months or, you know, on a a world tour every single year. Um, It it was, you know, they they take long breaks, but you had all this other stuff going on. And and I've got to get to the new record here, but... One thing that I do want to ask about, you know, in 2017, you, you had a, 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 a big tragedy. You lost your house and some wildfires in the studio. Are you back up and running with your own studio and, and, and back into your own house and all that good stuff? Yes, I, I'm back. It took a long time and it took quite a bit of a fight, um, you know, a little bit of a <laughs> legal battle here and there. Um, but, uh, yes, I am in my house now. Uh, unfortunately the, uh, cost of, uh, rebuilding went, it skyrocketed. Sure. So everything costs much more. So I don't have my, uh, projected studio, the, the, the one that burnt down that hadn't actually been done yet, but the building was there 
uh, that is no longer there. Um, but I have a control room uh, in my house, and I can set up uh, a drum kit in the house and actually in the kitchen, believe it or not, <laughs> and just throw some mics up. Um, in the last few years, because of not having uh, a place to live and not having a studio, um, I had a portable studio when I replaced all the, the, the actual equipment that got you know burnt. Um, thankfully, that insurance was was okay. It was the it was the other insurance, the, the house. You know, that was the the uh, the struggle. Um, I had started working at a, a local studio in Ojai, and they were so wonderful to me. Uh, they let me have time in the room. They let me rent it out. Uh, I mean, they, they let me rent it. So it was just me in the control room so I could do mixing, which is something they don't normally do. Um, and I started doing all my sessions there. Okay. Um, and I have to say at this age, well, I'm in my 60s, you know, I'm about to turn 65 next year. Having been an engineer for 40 years nearly and having recorded myself, probably for 40 years. Um, it is so lovely to have an engineer in the room doing it. Yeah. I can now be just the musician. I can turn up my drum kit. Is, I have a drum tech. He sets the drums up. He brings my microphones in. The engineer I've worked with so long now, Jason Mariani is his name. He knows exactly how to mic the drum kit up. He sometimes does some variations because he wants me to try stuff, uh, which is great. And I just turn up, make a cup of tea, and I go, right, are you all patched up? You say, oh, give me, give me another 10 minutes. I've got to patch a few chords here. Because we're talking a lot of microphones here, 20, uh, 24 probably. Um, and he says, right, go and hit some things. So I go out there, and he gets the sounds. I'm spoiled. It's lovely. <laughs> so I've begun really to uh, just really love that, the luxury of doing that. Um, it's not that, that I, I can't do it, um, but after a few years, it gets a bit tiring. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, you've earned the right to, to just yeah. be, <laughs> to just be the drummer, yeah. right? Yeah. You know what? You have to kind of, you set all your mic pre's, your gains. I mean, I know pretty much what they are, but it's still a guesswork, you know? Uh, and then you, you, uh, I control Pro Tools with an iPad now, thanks to Yukon. And I walk out, put my headphones on, and um, and hit record and then go around each drum, <laughs> you know, and then I can hear in the phones, oh, shit, that's way too loud, uh, you know, mess that one up. Uh, and then I go back in the control room, reset, have a look at things, have a listen, move a few mics, and then start EQing, which I'm guessing too, you know. Um, but again, with, with the experience of all those years, I pretty much know what, what to do, you know. Um, but it's a lot of toing and throwing before I can start recording a track. And... Uh, I guess I'm sport now. I've got a great studio to work in and uh, and a great engineer. So it's rather, it's, it's lovely, you know. Yep, for sure. Well, and let me say this, you know, I have uh, spent the weekend listening to the new record. And, you know, I, I, I just want to say to everybody, uh, the street date for this is February 4th uh, of 22. On February 4th, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to wherever <laughs> you buy your music and get this record because it is, yeah. oh, it is stupid good. Um, it oh, sounds so incredible. Uh, the compositions are so incredible. Um, I'll butcher the name, but there's one song. I, I think it's the Spanish translation of 20 minus one um, that is in 
the meter of 19 that just it's brain melting but the whole, <laughs> the, the whole record is so good um uh, just c- congratulations it's it's amazing thank you Oh, that's really uh, lovely. Thank you. It's actually Latin, unde viginti. It's Latin for, for 19. I got you. Okay. I, I knew it was something yeah. like that. I'm just, yeah. look, I, I'm a dairy farmer from Kentucky. What do I know? But <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. no. It's, 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 I just like these, uh, you know, so it's, uh, instrumental music is a really hard art form to put words to yeah. in terms of titles. And I really hate the silly titles, the stupid title, you know, kind of the jokey ones. I, I want real titles as though there were a real meaning, as though there were words. Um, it's funny. There's a lot of people in the world that do not understand uh, instrumental music. In fact, I was doing a one show with Protocol in a place called... Um, um, Oh, 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 what's the name of the, 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 the town? It's in Austria. It's where the Red Bull Racing Ring is, where the F1 track oh, is. Yeah, um, uh, I'll, I'll uh, think uh, of it in a minute. I'm an F1 fan. Oh, it's just escaped me. And uh, it's great. We, we, we spend a couple of days there. Usually we get in a hotel, lovely hotel. And that particular time, we were invited to the Red Bull Ring to drive a few buggies. We, the, the circuit was closed because they were resurfacing uh, areas of it. So they let us out in these little buggies. Of course, I used to race cars, and I loved doing it. They had a couple of racers there. They had an F1 guy, and they had an F3000 guy. And they were kind of supervising us because the rest of the band, they got in cars, but they've never driven a racing car before, you know. Um, and uh, I invited them to the show. <laughs> Now, the guy that organized this is a guy called Walter Lechner, who very sadly passed away. He used to run uh, two teams in the Porsche uh, Cup, uh, the, um, F- the F1 uh, GP support race, uh, plus the Abu Dhabi uh, F1, um, Porsche Career Cup as well. Um, he, he used to play guitar, and he was a huge fan. He would always come to shows when he could. And so he's there with these two young drivers, and we come out on the stage, and he told me the story after the gig. We played our first song. Then we go into the second song, and one of the drivers turns to Walter, and he said, well, Walter, he says, well, when does the singer come out? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. He'd never heard instrumental music like that before, you know. Oh. And Walter fell about laughing. He said, this is instrumental music. There is no singer. <laughs> it was so funny. You know? Oh, so, that. That's great. But I still like to the titles really resemble the the tune. It takes me ages to come up with these titles. Um, they're a little bit, uh, a little bit esoteric. I, I don't mean to be. I don't want to be pretentious in the titles, but they do actually mean a lot to the 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 song. You know, so uh, um, the the the, the, the Yaganat is actually just the Indian word for juggernaut. I see. And when I, the beginning of that song just reminded me, uh, I think when I was writing it, there was a big dustbin cart going by picking up trash cans. And I, that's a juggernaut, you know? And I think, yes, it sounds like a juggernaut, that sequencer uh, intro, you know? Um, so that's where that name came from. <laughs> well, you know, and as I've listened through a couple of times, um, the last track, I, I think it's called The Long Road Home, it just an mm-hmm. epic wonderful composition and you know I, it, look i'm not the biggest um you know funk or progressive rock f- 
fan in the world, certainly. I mean, there are guys that know the ins and outs of, of everything. Um, you know, Rod Morgenstein is one of my heroes, you know, from the Dixie Dregs. And, you know, mm-hmm. certainly you're up there. It's, it's not going to get radio airplay in today's, mm-hmm. um, shall we say, cesspool of the music industry. You know, your songs are far too smart to, you know, see the light of day from the traditional radio markets and, and all that stuff. Sure. Um, but if you are just a fan of brilliant music, you can sit and listen to this record. I, you know, and it takes you someplace. I get that very visceral emotional reaction, um, from listening to this record that I got when I was a kid from records, you know, whether it was dark side of the moon or whatever, um, and I think that's what all musicians are going for is to connect emotionally with the listener, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you've done that in spades on this record. Um, you know, and again, I want to be respectful of your time, but given, you know, all of the pandemic protocols and and all of the, you know, we've all been stuck at home for so long now. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. there plans next year? Should the situation present itself? Are you going to try to do some shows with this new lineup? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the first shows are being booked. We're, we're going to be playing Catalina's um, Jazz Club in Hollywood, uh, January 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And uh, Yoshi's in Oakland on the 25th. Okay, good. Now, and then. After that, we're going to try to, uh, well, we're, we're trying this at the moment, to, to put together a European tour, but I don't think that will happen until the fall. It just doesn't look good right now. Sure. You know? Well, I, you know, my hope, obviously, is for you guys to do a run of East Coast dates as well, so I'll put that bug in yep. your ear right now. So We're, we're looking into that right now. Okay, yes. yeah. good. Well, um, you know, because I, I would love to see this new lineup, and, and you know, if you want to, I, I again, I want to be respectful of your time, but kind of walk us through the personnel on this record, because there have been a few changes uh, since Protocol yes. 4. So everybody's brilliant. Tell us who all you have with you on this new record. Okay, so the band, um, which actually I started uh, this lineup um, last year, even the year before last, uh, naming it Protocol 30, because it was actually the 30-year anniversary of Protocol. Um, And it's such a, a wonderful band and a lovely bunch of people. I just thought, right, this is Protocol 5, you know. Um, I'm going to introduce the, the new uh, players, first of all. Um, Alex Sill, guitar player. Um, I think he's 27 or might have just turned 28. Um, an amazing young player. Uh, very advanced for his age. Um, uh, musically compositionally too he uh co-wrote uh quite a part quite a big part of uh the long road home um and uh so that that was fun actually work with him, working with him in that context absolutely his playing on this record is just it's wonderful um jacob sesney is the horn player and he's playing tenor alto and soprano 
on this record. Jacob is, again, he's 27. He'll turn 28 in a couple of days. Um, uh, again, far ahead of his years. Um, beautiful player. All his solos on the record are just mind-boggling. They're just beautiful, you know? Mature, too. That's the lovely thing. It's not just a barrage of notes. Um, it, it's the beautifully thought out, lyrical, compositional, and great. And these two guys, they're fearless. I can put any piece of music in front of them. They go, right, okay, we'll, we'll get to it. You know, we'll get through it. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. Um, on keyboards, again, uh, he took over from Dennis Ham in Protocol 4. He didn't play on Protocol 4, but he did all the live touring. And that's Otmaro Ruiz, which uh, a lot of people will probably know of. Uh, played with many, many people. John McLaughlin, Oh, I mean, loads of people. Um, and he's just uh, stunning as a player. Uh, he is the more, apart from me, he's the next in terms of the age. Uh, he's the more mature of the of the band. Um, absolutely wonderful. And, and he's uh, featured, you know, throughout the record. Beautiful solos, acoustic piano. There's a lot of acoustic piano on the record, yes. actually, which is nice. Um, and then, of course, the... Uh, Ernest Tibbs on bass, who has been in the band since 2013, playing on the second Protocol album, Protocol 2. Um, you know, Ernest, bass players, it's a tricky one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, with Ernest, it doesn't matter what we're playing. It just always feels good. And you see, to me, complex music shouldn't sound complex. It should still feel good. It should swing. And it should be fluid. Um, regardless of how actually intricate it is or complex. I don't like complex music for the sake of it. I really don't. Um, yes, you could say my music is, a lot of it is pretty complex, but uh, yes and no, it flows, and I, I think it feels great. Um, if it didn't, I'd be attending that problem very quickly in, in the studio, and that's the one great thing with Ernest. I can always rely on Ernest to keep me honest as a player, and just make sure the groove is there and the tempos are right. And, and it's absolutely lovely. And, you know, we've obviously we've worked together now for quite a few years. So we're good friends. And, uh, yeah, lovely. Really is very fortunate to have these guys. Well, it, the, again, the record is just so beautiful. Uh, I, I hope everybody picks up a copy. Um, it, mm. it's, it, it's just a great listen. So, um, you know, I'm a fan, obviously. Um, but I, I hope everybody picks up a copy and listens to it because, and I hope they get the same reaction that I did. And it, it is I definitely so. a very emotional reaction. And it's just like, wow, this is so good, you know, and, and just uh -huh. living inside that record, uh, you know, for, yeah. for a few minutes, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Simon, I cannot thank you enough for taking time to come on the drum shuffle and talk with us. Um, traditionally what we do here at the very end, we always ask all of our guests for their best piece of advice for other musicians, other drummers. I think the whole interview has been full of great advice, but you know, if you were going to bestow some wisdom on all of us mere mortal drummers, <laughs> what, what would you say? Um, well, I think in any playing scenario, you have to listen. You don't need to listen to yourself. Listen to the other people. Make sure you can always hear the other people. That's important. Um, 
on stage, I don't even have drums in my monitors anymore. I stopped doing that, ooh, in the last few years of Toto. I felt I could hear them enough. I'm right on top of them. I can also hear the PA giving me all the, you know, that lovely bottom end and bigness, you know, to a rock show. I don't need to have drums coming out of tiny little monitors that don't sound that good anyway. I, those monitors are for me to hear the rest of the band. And that to me is, is very important. Always keep your ears open to, um, to what everybody else is playing. And that will help you decide what you need to play. You know, how much you need to play or how little you can get away with. Um, and I think that's also the, the other thing. Um, figuring out, in a way, sometimes the simplest way to play a song um, where all your fills don't become automatic. They, you can change them, maybe even not do them, you know, just do one hit or something. Uh, it, that, that's the thing, is to try to listen to the music uh, as though you were listening to the finished product, but you're playing it at the time. Yeah, so that that would be my piece of advice. Wow, that's great advice. Um, again, Simon, thank you so much for taking time to do this. We appreciate it. February fourth is the date for Protocol Five. Everybody, go pick up a copy. Um, Simon is all over social media, so go follow him in all of those places as well. Simon, thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Been a great. Great, uh, great honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you real soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode number 141 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Again, many thanks to Simon Phillips for taking time out of his schedule to come on and chat with us for uh, well over an hour. It was just such a treat for me to have him on the show, and I can't wait for all of you guys to hear the fantastic new Protocol 5 record uh, hitting the shelves in early February. As I do each and every episode, I want to thank all of you for tuning in uh, and, and downloading the podcast. We simply can't do this show without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. Uh, sincerely, I appreciate that more than you'll ever know. If you want to help us, the biggest thing you can do to help this show continue to grow is share a link with a friend, and we appreciate your efforts around doing so. We answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle Podcast. The email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Again, I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. May the absolute worst of your 2022 be better than the best of your 2021. Um, the news doesn't look all that great surrounding the pandemic. Things seem to be getting a little bit worse again, uh, but I'm hoping for a much different 2022 uh, I hope everybody has a chance to go out and see some live music. Moreover, I hope everybody has a chance to go out and make some live music. So, Happy New Year. Until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.